received one. Am I not on? Am I on now? Hello? Hello? I'm good? I'm getting thumbs up. Maybe batteries need changed. <laughs> okay, let me welcome you to our Bible class this morning. We're continuing our study on Isaiah. Uh, Brother Wayne has some of the, the class handouts that's going around. I have, a, have some from previous lessons left down here. And uh, if you did not get one, you're welcome to get them. But let me urge you to get them today because I'm going to remove these uh, so it just doesn't look so cluttered down here. If you want some of the previous ones, here they are. There may be a few left from the, the lesson today. We're on lesson number eight. Uh, one point, uh, I received information from Ivano Frankis, the work that's going on there. And I have run off a report that talks about the construction, and that's really making progress. But then there is on the, uh, the report also some information about what the church is doing and how they're involved. And, and I'd like for you to get that and read that and to appreciate the work that our brethren are involved in there and that we as a congregation are involved. The, the congregation here oversees that work. Uh, many have been there personally and visited it. Uh, the congregation has uh, helped to, uh, to fund the work there for a number of years and also to help with the construction. So if you would like to see an update on the construction, and I was talking to Doug earlier, and, and he's been over there, and he's seen it several times. He said it's really impressive and encouraging, so I want to share that with you. Let's begin our class with prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Lord God Almighty, we're so thankful for the blessings that you've given us on this Lord's Day morning. We're thankful for the church that assembles at this meeting place. We're thankful for each member. We're thankful for the deacons and for the elders. And we pray that you'll bless them, bless all of us in our work, bless the elders as they oversee the work in this congregation. We pray, Father, all that we do will bring glory and honor to your name. We Thank you for the Bible, especially we're thankful for the prophecy of Isaiah that we're studying. Bless our study, and we pray that as we study that we will apply these, uh, these points very practically in, in our lives. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, our study this morning focuses upon what is identified as the third uh, or the fourth servant song. Uh, it's the third lesson we've had on the songs, but this, this particular song is one that is probably the most familiar because it talks about the, the death of Jesus and his willing sacrifice for us. And it's probably one of the more familiar passages that you find uh, in Isaiah that's quoted. For instance, over in Acts chapter 8, as the Ethiopian eunuch is uh, approached by Philip, uh, and Philip finds him reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading there the text that we'll be studying. The eunuch, uh, the eunuch is puzzled. He's, he doesn't understand what he's reading. And, and so he says, who is this talking about? And the Bible says, beginning at that point, 
Philip preached unto him Jesus. I remember Brother V.P. Black had a book of his sermons that he published, and one of the first sermons they ever preached came from that book and came from this particular passage. Uh, Brother V.P. would talk about what it means to preach Jesus, and uh, he has always had an outstanding uh, lesson in the points that are brought out. But he's not the only one that has focused upon this point. Uh, who is this speaking about? Is talking about Jesus Christ, and we can begin at that point to discuss him. It's, it's from Isaiah chapter 53, and it contains a description of what is often referred to as the suffering servant, because it describes for us the torture and agony and the pain that the servant of God is undergoing. And it allows it allowed Philip, and it allows us today to begin teaching uh, the gospel to others. The song actually is found in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. So if you open your Bible there, we'll, we'll go through that section of the prophecy this morning. There's graphic portrayal here of the sufferings of the servant, and it emphasizes the, the willing sacrifice that the servant was going to offer so that he could reunite man with God. Uh, this is a critical point whenever it comes to the scheme of redemption. And this is why Philip could begin with that passage and preach unto him Jesus. It talks about the marvelous grace of God, the supreme love of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, and also the hopeless predicament of man that's held hostage by sin. Well, as we look at this, there are certain elements that you find in this song. First of all, there's a message of cheer. Uh, this is what Philip was telling the eunuch, and it's a message that ought to be heralded throughout the world. And it's also a catalyst, thank you, Wayne, it's a catalyst for evangelism. When we realize the meaning of this passage and we understand the practicality in our lives as Christians, then that ought to ignite within us that same desire that Philip showed on that uh, dusty road with the chariot and the eunuch to preach Jesus to those that are in need in the world. As you contemplate this uh, and you understand the meaning of the sufferings of the, the servant and his willing, it's a very humbling thing. He was willing to die for us. He loved us, gave himself up for us, Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20. That ought to make a tremendous impact in our lives. It ought to be a humbling experience for us. Understanding the principles of this, this servant song here in Isaiah 52 and 53 will urge us to share the good news to preach Jesus to all of those, our friends and our family. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. And the word control is rendered in, in different ways. Uh, one translation is that it compels. And, and I like that because what it's talking about is a force. Paul says the love of Christ is a force that propels and the same idea is used in a fire hydrant. Have you ever tried to get a drop of water out of a fire hydrant? Just can't do it. 
I remember a fellow one time describing somebody in their talking habit. He says, well, getting him to hush is like getting a drop out of a fire hydrant. Just won't do because once that fire hydrant's turned on, you've got that water just gushing out of there. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.14 is telling us. The love of Christ constrains us, propels us. It, it pushes us. That's our motivation. Love of Christ constrains us Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you want to understand the basics of evangelism, here it is. Evangelism 101. Jesus Christ died for us and his love propels us. And that's what we find here in Isaiah 52, 53. Do we appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for my sins? Do, do I respect the planning of God that was prophesied 700 years before Jesus Christ would come? God planned this. Do I appreciate the plan that God has? What this tells us, again, is Jesus is unique. And we've seen this in the first three servant songs. Only Jesus. Jesus is unique. Only Jesus can, can answer the call of salvation, and here we find that that call is found in his willing sacrifice for us. The same idea is communicated over in Revelation chapter 5. In, uh, in, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, you have a wonderful uh, insight into heaven, and chapter 5 talks about the 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 Lord Jesus Christ. There you have a book that needs to be open, and, and Revelation 5, beginning in verse 6, says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. See, that's talking about Jesus, the lamb that was slain. He came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now before that, here's the book that was open, or needed to be open. And that book was sealed. That, that referred to the scheme of redemption. No hope for man. No salvation. Who can open it? John was asked. And there was nobody. Nobody in heaven. Nobody on earth. There was no person able to open it. And then comes chapter 5. And there was that lamb as if slain. And it said... He came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Only Jesus. Isaiah 52 and 53. Only Jesus could suffer for us. Go on over many pages in your Bible and you find that only Jesus was able to take that book out of the hand of God. Well, as we look at, at the lesson here, we find the majesty of the servant. And we find how this... The majesty will bring hope to us. There's five points that we look at very quickly in regard to this. Point number one is the exaltation of the servant. As you read through these passages, you find that this servant is exalted. And there's a number of reasons why he was exalted. Number one is wisdom. Look in chapter 52 and verse 13. He says, Behold, my servant will prosper. Now, again, our English is... English translation is a bit difficult here. Uh, will prosper is not an appropriate term. 
Some of you will have translations that will render it more accurate than what the New American Standard does. The verb communicates an intelligent and effective action, and so uh, the term prudent is better. And it's talking here, this servant is going to act prudently, or he's going to act wisely. All that he does is done with serious thought and consideration. Now, there'll be some that'll look at him and his life and his behavior, and they'll think that he is acting unwisely. Here's somebody that could have, have anything in the world, and yet he rejected that because he is following God. He was acting prudently here, and that's what the, the uh, passage is talking about. All he does is wise. Now, there's a wisdom in the Bible that, that contrasts with the wisdom of the world. See this best in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about the foolishness of God is a contrast with the wisdom of the world. Well, the servant here, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, has a wisdom that is different than the world's wisdom. And we see that in a practical way in our lives today. The world will say, in order to get ahead, you need to do this. Don't be sensitive to others. You be callous. You be hard-nosed. You, you go and, and you make sure that uh, you're the top, top dog. You're the king of the hill. Well, the servant had a different philosophy of success. We talked about that last week in the second song. And the reason he did is because he had a prudent wisdom that directed him. This wisdom of the servant, Ephesians 3 and verse 10 says, that this ought to be seen in the church, the church of Christ. If we are the Lord's disciples and we follow his commands, we are his body, then Ephesians 3.10 says that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. The church ought to act in a wise way, not the way of the world. And unfortunately, many are trying to do that today, compromise the wisdom of scriptures to grow in the wisdom of the world. That's not the way of success. Another wisdom is seen in our own lives, Ephesians 5.17, if we understand this, this suffering servant and how he, uh, he died so that we could live. Ephesians 5 talks about that. The entire fifth chapter is an amazing section of practical Christian advice, but here in verses 7 through 17, he inspiration specifically addresses those that are Christians. And he says, do not be partakers with them. With who? Those that, that are not wise, those that are foolish, those that are ignorant, those that are callous and insensitive. He says, do not be partakers with them. Why? Because you were once like them, but now you're light, and you are to walk as children of light. Do not participate in the things they do, he'll say later on, he says, but instead expose them. And then at the end, he makes this point, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So whenever this Savior comes to the world, he is going to have a wisdom that is distinctive, and that wisdom will exalt him. The servant's wisdom will result in three consequences, and these are seen in three verbs that you have there in verse 13. Uh, we won't really, we don't have time to look at, at these. 
they make an interesting study, so make a note and come back and study these. But wisdom will cause him uh, to rise up, or as, as uh, the uh, New American Standard says, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Uh, the word rise means that uh, although he is suffering, he is going to, to rise above that. And then the next verb, he is going to stand out or he will be lifted up. Uh, that talks about his distinguishing mark. And then he'll be high exceedingly or greatly exalted. And uh, all that he does is going to cause him to, to be above everybody else. Jesus Christ is unique. He is exalted. He's not like we are. Uh, and, and he is not like us because he is the Son of God that became man so that he could fulfill this, uh, this plan of God and uh, die for our sins. Christ is incomparable. Nothing compares to him. Nothing can replace him. He is the incomparable Christ. Those that follow this servant will be identified as distinctive. They will rise above all others and their morality and their righteousness is going to, to note that they are different. But look at a second thing. The exaltation of the servant causes astonishment. Down in chapter 52 and, and verse 14 it says, Many were amazed at you. Uh, the, the degradation that we find in chapter 53 is not lasting. In fact, in spite of this suffering, uh, that will be some of the, the harshest and cruelest forms of punishment. The servant is going to rise above that, and that shocking punishment uh, will really be a, a point of commendation for him. And as we look at this plan of God, here is someone that was willing to undergo torture and cruelty when he was innocent. And those that dealt out all this harsh punishment, they were the guilty ones. And yet he did it. He did it willingly for us. Romans 5 says this, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a powerful message, and that's exactly what we find Isaiah talking about in chapter 53. And so as you look at this astonishing behavior, ask yourself these questions. Do we fully contemplate this truth? As Paul would say, for while we were yet sinners, do we really understand what he's saying? I've talked to some folks that they really have questions as to whether they were sinners or not. Isn't that amazing? They would say, well, I, I just really, and they're being honest and they're being sincere. But they'll say, I just don't really remember a time when I deliberately sinned. Well, do, can such a person then comprehend? 
the wonderful blessings that Jesus Christ has given us? Do we understand our damned condition and our hopeless future without Christ? I don't think the world in general understands that. And to be honest, I don't think many Christians believe that those in the world are damned for eternity and in a hopeless situation. Or else we'd be like, like Philip preaching unto him Jesus beginning here in chapter 53 of Isaiah. That may be an uncomfortable query that we're asking ourselves here, but I think it's, it's really significant. Astonishing reactions are seen to this suffering Savior. First of all, I, it's astonishing that many will become a Christian without ever knowing the pricked heart of conviction. They've never really had that pricked heart of Acts 2.37. They have never been convicted in the sense that they were hopelessly lost. Well, there are many that never comprehend the pain of the sinner that's condemned to die. The sinner is empty. The sinner lives a life of futility and hopelessness. But we just don't seem to, to appreciate the reality of that. And many fail to appreciate the struggles that others have to become righteous. You know, living right is not easy. And it may be easier to some than to others. But I've talked to folks that uh, they said, you know, every time I do something right, it seems I do three things wrong. And I just can't get ahead. I just can't seem to conquer that. Well, Paul, if you look at the latter part of Romans 7, Paul dealt with that same thing. You know, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I shouldn't do is what I do. I'm reminded of the Pharisee and publican over in Luke chapter 18. There it describes this, this disconnect that some people have with sympathizing with those that are struggling. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, I do not think that you ought to enable people to be irresponsible. I do not think that you ought to justify and rationalize and excuse someone that is sinning. But that doesn't mean you can't sympathize with them, and it doesn't mean that you can't say something to them to help them to straighten out their lives. There are many individuals that they see this servant, and they, they give astonishing behavior reactions to it. Uh, and that, that comes out as I, I look at this particular point. Think about this. How many will sing hymns of conviction and yet never comprehend their true situation before God? We're to sing with the Spirit and with the understanding. Some people don't sing at all, which is, is tragic. Some people will sing, but they do not sing with devotion and commitment and conviction. They mouth the words. And here we need to understand the servant is one that that strikes within us in chapter 53 the idea of conviction and, and our hearts should be, be pricked 
How many of us can identify with Paul's confession? He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not that Paul did it on his own. You are here today by the grace of God. Think about that. You are here by the grace of God. And Paul says, look, an inspired apostle, writer of the books, the majority of the books of the New Testament, evangelistic activities that are phenomenal. He said, it's by the grace of God. It's all by the grace. God has done this. And then, have you ever seen the grace of God in somebody's life? I like the statement that, that is made there in Acts chapter 11. When they came, they saw the grace of God in their lives. Have you ever seen somebody's whose life was evidence of the grace of God? Well, it all comes back from this concept here in Isaiah 52 and verse 14 that this servant is coming and he is going to do things that are astonishing and those that watch him. Well, there's in this servant's exaltation, he's exalted because of atonement. And I like this. Look in verse 15. It says, he will sprinkle many nations. Now, again, in our current situation, our understanding of the term sprinkle may not give us the full idea of being communicated. But the idea is that of a, a religious action which brings about cleansing. Uh, and it was very clear communication whenever Isaiah was speaking about it. This servant is coming, he says, and in verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. And that term sprinkle refers to the act of purifying the corrupt and making it acceptable for fellowship under the Mosaic law Levitical sacrifices, there were certain prescriptions there that they would take and they would sprinkle the blood for cleansing, for purifying, for sanctifying. And that's the point that we're, doing, we're seeing right here. This servant is coming and he is going to sprinkle many nations. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, To those who are chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When this Savior comes, he is coming and, and he is going to sprinkle uh, many nations. Uh, Many nations refer to the fact that uh, uh, it would be offered to, to the entire world. The servant was never designed to be restricted just in geographical boundaries to languages, to uh, ethnic groups, to, to nations. He is going to sprinkle many nations. Well, in the all of uh, this, let me catch up real quick. The all of this sprinkling or this, this sanctifying, this purifying here. He says, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. This refers to the fact that they're speechless. They can't find the words to speak. Whenever you begin to think about what this servant was going to do and how he was going to perform the scheme of redemption 
so that he could sprinkle many nations and sanctify and cleanse them and make them uh, have renewed fellowship with God. Uh, it's, it's incredible that uh, it's, it's almost uh, indescribable. Uh, and so kings are unable to speak. They're just awed by this particular point. And the awe of the gospel remains today. I've talked with folks who thought that they were too dirty or too sinful to approach the Creator. I'm just too bad. There's no hope. Let me suggest this to you, and I may have made this observation before, but it it needs to be repeated. A person can be too good for God, but he can never be too bad for God. Now think about that. A person can be too good for God, but never too bad for God. Go back to uh, Luke 18. There you have perfect illustration. The publican was too good for God. You know, I thank you that I'm not like this fellow over here. And his prayer didn't get past the ceiling, some folks would say. But then the other fellow who thought that he was too bad for God stood and simply prayed, forgive me. And Christ says, which went down to his house, accepted by God, justified. You see, the awe of the gospel here is that this servant has come of his own choice. And he has undergone all of these horrors. And this individual has now offered a way that is available to all nations It doesn't matter how dirty you are. It doesn't matter how sinful you are. You now have an opportunity to approach the almighty creator and enjoy fellowship with the holy God. Ephesians chapter 2, marvelous chapter of the Bible. And it talks about this. And and I wish we had time to go through and, and study that. But just jot it down and read it. Because in Ephesians 2, we have... The, uh, the result, the all that comes from the preaching of the gospel. Some will hear, but they're not going to be moved. Acts 26, we're introduced to Felix and Agrippa there. And, uh, you know, or Festus, I mean, Festus and Agrippa. And uh, they're, they're not moved. A more convenient time, Agrippa said, a more convenient time, but... That time never comes, as we discussed last week. And then another group, some will enjoy the cleansing because they've obeyed, but then they turn away from God with contempt. And Hebrews 10.26 says that there remains no more sacrifice for them. They willingly crucify Christ. Well, they once called Him Lord. They once responded to Him and obeyed His will, but... Then, with contempt, they have turned away from him, trusting, like, kind of like Demas over in uh, 2 Timothy 4. All right, let's look at another point. The atonement has another aspect, and that's the acceptance. You see, this masterful plan, it's almost too good to be real. You know, how can such a, a scheme occur? Well, because of the love of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. 
And so as you begin preaching and teaching that, we see that that acceptance is demonstrated here in, uh, in chapter 52 and, and verse 15. It says there, they will see. In the latter part of verse 15, they will understand. What a happy day it is when suddenly that light bulb clicks on inside your brain and you say, I understand that. I see that. I studied with a fellow in St. Louis for two years. I thought it was done no good. And uh, I mean, every week for two years. And finally, after, after two years, I, I said, look, I don't know what else to do. And, and so we just stopped. And then about a year later, he calls me and he says, uh, John, I just want you to know I now believe. <laughs> well, I was shocked. I said, well, that's fantastic. Uh, and, and he was immersed. Uh, but until he could see and understand, he didn't know, know why he ought to obey. Well, here the servant comes, and what he's going to do, the sprinkling there and the all that is found in the atonement, they, it's going to be accepted. They will see and they will understand. Uh, the gospel is always going to be effective. Just turn over a chapter to chapter 55 of Isaiah and, and so many, uh, in fact, the entire chapter titled there, God's Offer of Mercy. But look down to verse 10. He says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. There is an acceptance that's going to take place. Accepting salvation, here are the options there. Whenever we come to accepting submission to God, there, there are some groups. First of all, there are some that uh, they will obey if they're told. And then there are many that have never understood, but they will understand if they are taught. And then there are those that are going to stand in the judgment and hear their souls condemned to hell's eternity because someone did not talk to them. They didn't want to hurt their feelings. They didn't want to drive them away, and so they kept quiet. And on the judgment, they didn't see, they didn't understand, as verse, uh, the verse 15 points out here, and as a result, they're lost. Paul talked to uh, the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, in verses 7 and 8, and said there's two categories of folks that's going to meet the Lord and the Lord's vengeance. He says when he comes back, he says, first of all, he's going to deal out retribution to those that do not know God. And then number two, to those that do not obey God. And the prophet here is telling us the servant is coming to do that. All right, let's look at a, the second point real quick here. The career of the servant. Here is a, a career that is phenomenal. The world has seen corrupt powers. They had seen the world powers of Assyria and Egypt, Babylon. They've seen so much in the world. But here's a world power, a world ruler, that is going to reign with righteousness. And Isaiah's prophecy announced that this powerful regent is going to utilize his power in, in a number of ways, not in arrogance, 
not by the, as we pointed out in previous lessons, not by the force and boldness of his word, but he's going to reign with righteousness. Jesus Christ is the majestic king. He's the destroyer of Satan, the mighty opponent, the awesome judge, and he is going to perform his duties as a suffering servant. Amazing. Well, here are some of the points. The servant's career is seen highlighted in these passages. First of all, chapter 53 and verse 1, his rule is going to be with an incredible message. We've talked about that some. Chapter 53 and verse 3, his career is not really on the path of success as the world would, would gauge it because his career is marked with being despised and rejected and forsaken of men. But that's his career. 53 and verse 5, his power, he's all-powerful, and you'd expect him to be all-powerful in, in presence, but the prophet says, he will be crushed. Chapter 53 and verse 9. You would expect a, a region, a ruler of his stature and his ability and power uh, to be exalted high. And yet here verse 9 says, he'll be numbered with the transgressors. He will be uh, occupying a dishonorable role. Another passage there, chapter 53 verses 10 and 11. The sufferings were of no ordinary way. They were inflicted for a cause. And that cause was different than the ordinary. Not He wasn't being punished for his sins. He was being punished for the sins of others. Verses 11 and 12. The message here, after the great suffering, the servant is going to revive. His days will be prolonged. He'll erect a, a spiritual kingdom, sprinkle many nations, and advance above all other kings. This is the career path that the suffering servant finds here. And so an incredible lesson is found in the career that is revealed for us. The, the blessings of this servant come only because of the servant's attitude and willingness. God said, I will allot him a portion with the great, with the strong, because he poured out death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This, this is the career. And his career was successful for that. Okay, number, uh, number next. Uh, the third thing that the suffering servant is described here is that of suffering. Uh, the practice of the servant did exactly what Isaiah prophesied. We see that in the life of Christ. Uh, his life... Uh, was received, his position was received with incredulous minds. They couldn't believe that, that he was the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, why don't you do this? You see, they didn't really accept that. He was also despised. He was forsaken. He was burdened with sorrow. Uh, Jesus Christ served by accepting the penalty of sin for sins that we chose to commit. Not that he did, but this is what his suffering was. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being. By his scourging, we are healed. And Jesus Christ served without a fault. All of these points are found in the prophecy of Isaiah that pinpointed 
the coming of Jesus Christ. The suffering of the servant did not diminish his power, it magnified it. And Paul uses that in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, talking about the wonderful uh, incarnation of the Son of God on earth. Christ came because he wanted to serve, and he suffered in order to serve. He is wearied by physical exertion, fatigued with emotional stresses, exhausted by masses who failed to understand his purpose, but Jesus continued to serve. At what point does your exhaustion in the service of God cause you to stop? Hebrew writer speaks about those that have the, the weak knees and, and the hands that hang limp. Are you there? So was the Lord, Isaiah 53, and yet he continued. Jesus Christ served for us. The Lord's Spirit is an exemplary model. Have this mind in you or this attitude in you, Philippians 2 and verse 5, which was in Christ. Or at the reward, that's the, the fourth point that we find here, the servant's reward. What's the consequence of this? And we see the consequence uh, emphasized by Jesus Christ. The eternal king, the prince of peace, here are the rewards. He will be a servant king and he will reign as Lord over a kingdom of servants. This is what results because of his servants. Now Jesus Christ today demands the same attitude from his servants. He wants those that follow him to be a servant just as he was. And his anger burns the hottest against those that have rejected the humility of the servant that he demonstrates here in Isaiah 53. And the, the emblems of Christ's kingdom are atypical uh, of a world empire. It's not a crown of thorns, a crown of splendid jewels, but a crown of painful thorns. It's not a scepter of tyranny, but a towel of submission. It's not a throne of exalted status, but it's a cross where he was raised up. In his kingdom there's an equality, Galatians 3, 28. In his kingdom there is equal and willing submission. Philippians 2, 4, he says, Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. In Christ's kingdom are those that, uh, that are the most visible. And, and just look, we don't have time to talk about these. But here it is, ministers. Ministers in the kingdom of Christ. That's not a special ordained group. Each one is a minister. Everybody's a minister. That means we're all servants. You don't hire a servant to, to do your job. You do your job. All right, we do have in the church the elders, and they are the shepherds, but their position is one of great service as well. And you just look at how the Bible defines the work of the elder, and you tell me that that's not a servant. You don't understand what a servant is. And then the deacons, the, the second group of official officers in the church, they are identified as special servants of God. Well, here the kingdom of Christ is is populated by those that are serving. Jesus Christ sits in a position today as the servant king who is reigning a kingdom of servants. The impact. What about the impact that we find in, in the Lord and his kingdom, his coming as a servant? 
two, two things. First of all, there are many that continue to disbelieve. Just look in the world around about you. Second, there are many who uh, will submit, but they fail to live as his servants. They've rendered obedience, but they, uh, they've bowed their heads, but not their hearts. They're still following the world. The world still has deceived them, and they are deluded by that. They have pride, empty excuses, half-hearted commitments that prevents them from being devout servants. I, the, the next point comes from either Brother Gus or Brother VP. I forget which one I got it from, but I, I want to think of an article I read that Brother Gus Nichols had some time ago. And it's a poem. You probably have seen it too, but it applies to the point of service. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Real service is what I desire. I'll sing a solo any time, dear Lord, but don't ask me to sing with the crowd. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I like to see things come to pass, but don't ask me to teach boys and girls, oh Lord. I'd rather just stay in my class. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I yearn for thy kingdom to spread galore. I'll give you my nickels and dimes, dear Lord, but please don't ask for any more. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. I'm busy just now with myself, dear Lord, so I'll help you some other day. Well, the servant's impact. Here's, here's the last points to write down. God is going to show him the seed of his work. God will sustain him with long days, satisfy him with the knowledge of the results of his suffering, and share with him the victory. Now, real quickly, let me close. Going back to that uh, Ethiopian eunuch, the eunuch understood he was compelled. Beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? They both went down to the water, and he baptized him. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing, understanding the suffering servant compels response. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet. And uh, the word rightly is a strong, a strong moral, uh, has strong moral overtones. It means it's absolutely right. So I hope that these thoughts about the suffering servant will, uh, will help you to appreciate Jesus. Remember the handouts that they're in either of the the foyers, as you come in, get it and read about the good work your brethren are doing in Ukraine. Thank you all.